Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, Charles Firth from The Chaser is on the show today. This is an interview that I did with Charles a couple of weeks ago. Love this chat. Really enjoyed getting to sit down with Charles and talk about comedy and the world and the state of satire and his career and what he's choosing to do and his thoughts on COVID. But particularly... I want to give a massive plug to this project he's been doing, The War on 2020, which it turns out has happened. Uh, There was a little consternation about that and some uh, video cards not loading that you'll hear about at the start of this episode. But all the sketches have been out online. You can go to the Chaser website and follow The War on 2020, but you might have seen some of the amazing uh, sketches. In fact, I think, to be honest, the best satirical sketch comedy that I have seen in a very long time. You will have, of course, seen by now the Beckshaw, Nina Oyama penned Contact Tracys, which I think is probably, you know, my my favourite bit of sketch comedy that I've seen in years. The performances are amazing. The editing is amazing. The writing is note perfect. Uh, there is about five different things going on all at once. And I just think they're all nailed so elegantly and so hilariously. So if you have not seen any of those things, start with the contact traces, just Google contact traces and you'll find that sketch, but have a look at all the sketches that have come out of the war on 2020, because really, honestly, some absolutely amazing stuff and a whole bunch of future philosophy guests featured, I hope in those uh, sketches. Um, hey, if you like this show, we're going to continue on over the holidays. Some of my other shows, Tofop and Fofop and Two Guys, One Cup, are having a bit of a Christmas break, but we're going to continue on with weekly philosophies. And if we can get over that $5,000 mark on Patreon, twice weekly philosophies, we're close. As usual, we get towards the end of the month, we get very close to the 5000 We pop over the 5000 when some subscriptions... <laughs> tend to go in and out and then we'll go back under 5,000 but if we can keep it consistently over 5,000 for 2021 then that will mean two episodes per week one brand new episode with a brand new guest like today's episode is and then one catch-up episode with the previous guest I've got a couple of those up my sleeve uh, a great episode with Emma Rossiano and a great episode with Jan Fran who was in quarantine when I talked to her So two really great episodes there that I would love to post. So if we get up over $5,000 per week, we can do two episodes per week. Otherwise, one episode per week will still keep coming out over January and into the new year. Might have a break at some stage. Turns out, as uh, we worked out the other day, I haven't had a break from this show in, in two years now as we started to you know, try to establish it as a weekly thing and then maybe even a twice weekly thing. So thank you to everybody who supported the show in 2020. It's been an amazingly uh, big year for this podcast. Basically, every thought thing we thought that was true about it, everything that we had as a hard and fast rule got upended because of the pandemic and we managed to pivot a little and I've been excited about the opportunities that that has allowed us in getting this show out and being able to do it more regularly. And thank you so much for your incredible support this year. I'll talk more about that in the year. In the coming weeks, I might try to get podcast mic on and maybe we can do a little look back at 2020 through the eyes of the philosophy podcast and have a little catch-up chat. But for everybody else, patreon.com slash philosophy is the place to go. You can join for as little as one US dollar per month. And if we get over $5,000, which I'd love to be able to do, if we could go into 2021 with over $5,000 and keep that up for the year, then we could do two episodes per week 
I think that's how the podcast feels most natural. A brand new episode with a brand new guest every week, but I love the catch-up episodes. There's something that really only came in as a regular thing during COVID, but I think it's something that I would really love to keep as part of the philosophy format, but I don't want them to get in the way of, you know, new episodes with new guests. So the best balance really does seem to be two episodes per week, one new, one catch-up, and the only way for us to be able to afford to do that is to get those Patreon donations over $5,000. So if you've ever thought about joining up, this is the perfect time to join up. I'd love to go into 2021 with that plan. Uh, Patreon.com slash philosophy. But in the meantime, go and check out the Chasers War on 2020 and enjoy this conversation with Charles. Welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, and this is how the show starts. I ask my guests who they are. So who are you, sir? I'm Charles Firth. Hello, Charles Firth. And you were just telling me before we started this that you're Charles Firth, who's currently having a heart attack, because there's nothing I like more than my guests to be distracted from this conversation for the hour that we're going to talk (laughs) by something major that's happened to them in their life about three minutes before we started recording. That is exactly what it is. Literally three minutes. It was like 9.57, we'd do it to talk at 10. Uh, the editor, I'm doing this project called War on 2020. Lots of comedy sketches, high production values. Just spent the last three weeks shooting it. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Lots of editing. You know, We've had two weeks of editing. Lots of files created. Uh, we had a, an issue with Dropbox this morning. And I, I said to the guy about an hour ago, oh, just um, just turn off syncing. It'll If you just turn off syncing, here's a quick way of fixing everything <laughs> so did that. he just came in with this sort of crestfallen look of horror on his face three minutes before we did it <laughs> i go in there and he goes it's a very strange error and and so he can't open any of the project files so literally two weeks worth of work he doesn't seem to be able to open open and and the and we went through and sort of tried to link the files back, and it just said, and you can see all the files; they're all there. It's just not talking to each other, and it and the what Adobe Premiere calls it is uh, could not link due to generic error. <laughs> so it's the whole generic error. Oh well, I'll just look that up on the internet. That's nice and specific. We'll work out how that works. <laughs> We have a generic error. A generic error. Well, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that. That'll be really good. So this project you're working on, it feels very 2020 for this to actually happen because it feels like 2020 has been subject to some sort of generalized generic error that we've been going through. Like it feels like it's not quite done. It's suitable to me that if you're making a show about 2020, that something 2020 like would happen yeah, to it. Something absolutely catastrophic would happen to it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, no, I, I mean it's funny because, um, like, I feel like we're just not going to have any material after 2020 because it's sort of like we've packed in all the tragedy for the next 20 years into this year, and. So we're just actually like 2021, even like I assume 2021 will also be awful, but it'll be awful in a sort of, uh, 
you know, yeah, it's a bit like 2020 way. And so, it, it, so one of the lasting impacts of 2020 is that the re- like the next 20 years is also going to be awful just because it's not as climactic as this year. Like we've actually we've stuffed up our whole narrative arc for the next 20 years, don't you reckon? Like, you know, th- th- this is supposed to be just before the closing credits, all this stuff happening. And and now and then, but there's no sign that 2020 is going to end in. Oh no, maybe that is what's going to happen. I think it, maybe 2020 is just going to end, and that's the end of the movie. And we never that we don't get to 2021. I think that's I, what needs. I do. To I, it it does have a final season feel to it. it yeah. I must yeah. admit that there is a real sense of like we've got to wrap up all these storylines before Christmas <laughs> feel to twenty twenty. But yeah. I think you're also right in that. Of course, there's going to be. There never is. It's always such a... In fact, I remember I was one of those people who had... I had a bit of a, you know, in retrospect, fine 2019, but mm. at the time I thought it had been quite a crappy year. And I was like one of those people who was like, I know this is ridiculous. I know it's just a date on a calendar. I know the universe doesn't pay attention to the calendar, but I am so glad to be done with 2019. I am so looking forward to 2020. Yes. Then we've had this year. The idea that somehow on January the 1st, everything's going to go back to being fine. You're absolutely right. It's going to be a sequel. Like next year is not going to be 2021. Next year is going to be 2020 part two. Yes. Oh, God. And, you know, so because one of the sketches that we did for this Warren 2020 project um, has David Stratton and Margaret Pomerantz, and they're just reviewing 2020 as a movie, and David Stratton just pans it as ridiculous, chaotic. The writers didn't know what to cut out so they just put everything in they put in bush flies they put in plagues they, they had present drinking bleach like it's just it doesn't it's not believable and then margaret of course loves the movie because it's just a comedy it's just, you're supposed to just laugh at it it's a satire it doesn't it's not supposed to make sense you know it, it does feel like one of those years where no ideas were left on the writer's board yeah, that's just right. every idea that came up <laughs> yeah. in the meeting got thrown into it. It shows the value of editing, but it, I, but it, it, like you were saying, twenty nineteen was bad for you. I mean, I had a shocker of a twenty fifteen, and then twenty sixteen was bad because Trump and everything. And you just go, actually, we're getting to the point where every year is sort of terrible, and then you go, oh, that's what it's like when like there's a lot of people in the world for whom you know, like who aren't in rich, wealthy countries that, you know, <laughs> who for whom their lives are constantly chaotic and at the behest of forces that are outside of their controls. And it, I feel like, you know, sort of rich Western countries are finally getting there at comeuppance and experiencing what a lot of the rest of the world actually get all the time from out of life. That, you know, that you because it, what's happening is... Events are spiralling outside of human control. Like Western sort of systems of governance, but also technology just are not equipped to deal with climate change and plagues and everything that the world is throwing up. I do have a sense that, I mean, pandemic-wise, of course, in third world countries, you know, junior versions of these pandemics, but no more real than to the people who are going through them, whether they be malaria or other diseases, that we Mm. tend to have a lid on in like, you know, in Australia and in other sort of rich first world countries, that's Mm. been their way of life and what they've had to face, you know, for 
generations maybe for their entire lifetimes. We're getting an insight to that, but also it should be pointed out that particularly as two white, you know, Australian men, Yes. We couldn't be more at the top of the mountain complaining about how terrible our lives are. I know, are. I know. Like, I mean, yes. literally, there's probably no better place than Australia to be at the moment. And if we're sitting around going, gee, this was a shit year, you've got to understand <laughs> that. Like, yeah, it has been yeah. a shit year for us. Mm. But those people who are already going through shit things, they've also yeah. had this on top of it. On top of that, yes. Oh, oh. God, I'm glad I'm a white man. <laughs> Sorry, we're talking we're now becoming the Joe Rogan experience, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, well, the numbers will go up. I might yeah. get a Spotify deal if you keep going down there. If you could bring up DMT and hunting elk, I think this will be a high-rating podcast. Um, I ask people on this show, Charles, if they have mm. a philosophy of some kind. Do you have a, a life philosophy or a work philosophy or a love philosophy of some kind? Oh, that's... God, that's... Um it's deep, isn't it? Um, I, I I I didn't until earlier this year, actually. Um, and then I sort of I, I did a lot of therapy this year, actually, which I'm sure lots of people have done. And um, and I sort of realised, you know, what you know, various patterns that were sort of, you know, that actually, like, I think. You know, like you say, oh, love philosophy, or life philosophy, or work philosophy, they're all the same thing. In the end, you're motivated by various things that have happened in your childhood. But one of the um, things that I've always wondered about is why, why do I keep just doing comedy rather than go off and do more important things? Like, you know, it, like all my friends, like Craig and people like that, go off and save the world in action movies against the weather and stuff like that. <laughs> or Chris does these sort of heady dramas for Foxtel that, you know, make everyone cry and, you know, work out the eternal verities of life. And I'm, I'm there, I'm, he, I'm, I'm still at the chase. I'm still doing silly gags for, you know, um, <laughs> headline gags and things like that, and I love it. Like, I love it. I really enjoy it. Like this is it's like pig in mud, just the funnest thing to do. And I realised that actually my parents broke up when I was very young, and for many years I sort of, um, you know, was a bit sad about that, I suppose. And and I used to just tell myself jokes um, as a way to sort of not be sad and to. And I just in my mind sort of amuse myself. And people have always remarked that I just um, I always laugh hardest at my own jokes. So I really, really enjoy. <laughs> and I realised that actually I just enjoy, it's just a comfort thing. I just really love it. I don't, like, and, and I mean, it's, I admit it's a total privilege to do what you love. But to be guided by what you love as as the thing, you know, like at every pivotal moment in my career, to my, you know, wrong, you know, like <laughs> to my detriment, I've chosen the sort of path of, oh, you know, like, where you go, oh, I should sort of do a nine to five job at this point, or, you know, I've chosen instead to sort of do these projects that aren't very profitable or wise, but are really enjoyable. And it's sort of, it's, I think it's served me well in the end because it means that I have a more integrated, like I think, I think 
what you need to do is integrate your life with your work so that there is there isn't a distinction between work and life it's that your work enables you to enjoy your kids and your family and your friends and your lovers and um because it's it's you're driven by the passion and i know that that's that's such a privileged thing to say but i think it does it does actually work okay so so much to unpack then so firstly why why do you think that those other things are more important than comedy or you do you actually not think that those other things are more important than comedy because you talk about the idea that and don't get me wrong like Mm. uh what chris and craig are doing are both very admirable in their own ways but the way Mm. you framed it was should i be doing something more important than comedy was that a like was that self-effacing was that ironic was that that you genuinely believe those things are more respectable than comedy yeah because actually it's yeah maybe it was just um wrong thinking on my part wasn't it because i don't believe that comedy doesn't have a place and an important place i think Actually, a lot of the satirical comment we make is is a really key part to sort of. I mean, <laughs> no wanting to big numbers. I think it's actually a key part of our democratic discussion. Like, and you know, the Chaser website is now um, under my wise leadership. Uh, if you if you actually if we had the money to do the Nielsen ratings, we would be the fifteenth biggest website in Australia. Right? We do serious traffic. And and people never believe our numbers because we we're sort of reaching six or seven million people a a month, um, unique people a month, and and that gives us a real opportunity for voice, right? Like we actually, ha- and we do. We actually now sort of realise we have to be a bit responsible with how we sort of frame stories and 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 even though they're funny, there's always meaning behind comedy. And, you know, it is a way in which people actually get informed of what's going on. So, yeah, I think um, in some respects um, that's happened. But I suppose what I'd say is I don't think that that's necessary. I think the change the world part of the equation, which I think probably um, in my 20s is the way I justified wanting to do it, has actually evaporated from me in terms of that being... What I've realised is just personally, I, I really value the fact that I get to sit round these tables with other funny people and get to laugh at their jokes and they get to laugh at my jokes and we make ourselves laugh. And that is honestly part of my week. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just, it's so enjoyable to do that. So I, I suppose, yeah, I, I, I shouldn't be so self-effacing about that. Um, and I think also... Um, but then uh, the other thing I wanted to say on the topic of sort of um, reach and influence and stuff like that is there's a really good example. Um, the other day, Malcolm Turnbull, what did he say? He said something about how he wanted um, everyone to be carbon neutral by 2030. It was something that he just literally, as Prime Minister, could have done didn't do, but now that he's not Prime Minister, wow, he's the purest, most fantastic person on climate change ever, right? And we did... Yeah, he's amazing at being Prime Minister now that he's not Prime Minister. <laughs> a lot of his takes on things are really good now that he's not in a position to do anything about any of them. Yeah, it's really... It's really good. It makes you realise what it must be like to be a Catholic. But um, <laughs> he... he, um, he but it, and we, we put out a tweet sort of pointing that out... 
And it started going very viral, like a thousand retweets in the first, you know, hour or so. And it was like, oh, right, that, that's hit a thing because it was sort of paying out Malcolm Turnbull for being greeny. Like it sort of was a weird angle. And, um, and then we decided, actually, we're going to pull that because even though he's a sort of latecomer to the cause and there is a sort of hypocrisy there, let's not pile on... Like that's a sort of news-limited thing to do, isn't it? To pile on to someone for being good for once <laughs> so yeah it's a pity it's a pity you weren't being good when you had the capacity to change it but yeah. it's not that you're without capacity to help change things now yeah we probably shouldn't shit on you for having the right position now yeah exactly so um so i think that's the example of where we've actually decided to and it's probably is a change i mean it definitely is a change from 20 years ago when we first started where we were allowed to sort of we just sort of um hit everyone and everything and we're just angry. Um, but the other thing that I've been drumming in, which is actually something that Andrew Denton taught us many years ago, was is that actually, especially with the young keen beans, who are very talented and very funny, um, there's real earnestness to a lot of the Gen Z um, people that I've been working with. And they do. They want to, at the end of sketches, just you know, not have a punchline, but, you know, say, and that's why racism is bad or something. And, and, and you go, but, but guys, like, you know, comedy, like your license to comment on this is entirely contingent on being funny, right? You know, people aren't listening to you because they're so amazed by the profundity that racism is bad. The only reason you're allowed to have a comment, whereas Joe from up the road isn't, who also thinks racism is bad, is because you're doing it with such craft and such skill and, and you're, you're getting into people's brains in such a entertaining way that you are given this licence to comment and you can never forget that. Never, never go off and um, it, within this world, you know, if you're not applying comedy to it at all times and making people laugh then you lose your license to come in yeah i've always had a bit of an unofficial rule like with my stand-up in particular i think it probably applies to more than anything which is that i can have if i want to make a point i have to have a punchline but i'm allowed to have a punchline without a point but i'm not allowed to have a point without a punchline that's yeah. basically the rule right yeah. like i can make a joke that isn't about anything particularly meaningful, that's fine because my job is being a comedian. But if I want to make a point, I have to have a joke to go with it. If I'm just making points, then it's not comedy anymore really, is it? Mm. And that's where I reckon Hannah Gadsby um, is like the most groundbreaking comedian of the last <laughs> five years in that she sort of basically did essaying as as comedy i mean it was just electric the way she managed to sort of be you know because part of the problem with comedy is you sort of do end up skating along the surface to make sure that you've got enough punchline to point ratio <laughs> and and yet she somehow um she she disrupted the form well enough with and with such craft that she she legitimately, you know, created an entire sort of essay um, in the comedic form. It was just, I mean... Yeah, but, and what I would argue is that, and I think that I would argue against those who 
have, and I'm, I'm not saying you had this reading of it, and I don't think that you do, but there are some people who are like, well, it's just a TED talk or it's not funny enough to be comedy or any of those sort of things. I think that is a complete misreading of how she structured that show because mm. I believe that what she did do was actually set up, here's a style of comedy you are used to hearing. I'm going to explain to you how it works and then I'm going to deconstruct it so that when she stopped sort of telling jokes and started making points – that was the joke and that was also the point. Yes, right. yes, exactly. She she had such a mastery of the form that she was able to sort of slip her points in the like in such a profoundly good way. Like in such a profoundly entertaining way. Oh yeah, people who say, Oh, it wasn't funny, you just go, oh, you obviously didn't watch it and like it was yeah. very funny. <laughs> you idiot. Yeah, that just makes you sound dumb, mate. <laughs> and then and then also because did you see her Next show, like the one she did in last Douglas. year, yes. yeah, Douglas, yeah, and, um, where she just, she just sort of, you know, like flicks everyone away who <laughs> thinks that <laughs> she's not funny by doing the whole setup of her show was basically saying this is what's going to happen during the whole <laughs> show, um, and then she she does it so that everything becomes a callback to her, the first. 10 minutes where she's set up what's going to unfold. It's just it's just such command over craft that, um, yeah, you, you just have to listen to it. It's so good. So you, like, are now, like you said, you know, being a mentor of sorts to a next generation. You know, originally when you guys start doing, you know, Chaser, it's very much a group of contemporaries, you know, mm. perhaps under, you know, like you said, some guidance from Andrew Denton initially, but essentially a group of, you know, people from a similar stage of life, you know, a similar world, you know, to at least a certain extent um, and a similar way of attacking the world. But now you're like an elder statesman of that organisation and you're, you know, teaching the next, you're Obi-Wan Kenobi to this next generation (laughs) of satirists. How do you balance, you know, advising them in the right way without, you know, without putting, I guess, some water on that fire that is absolutely necessary to, you know, do the sort of work that you want them to do? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the truth is I've always, and I know this sounds weird and condescending, but I think I've always slightly played the mentor role. Like even with my contemporaries, uh, the role I tended to play was to give everyone the confidence that they needed that what was going on was really funny and, and be the enthusiast. Like in some ways mentoring, um, it, you know, mentoring is more than this, but at its core mentoring is being enthusiastically supportive uh, in a way that's critical but actually fairly unconditional so that people feel that they've they've got the confidence to sort of uh, bring things through and then, you know, critical engagement sort of um, makes them sort of thing. I suppose the thing that you don't realise at the time but then when you're watching people who are 20 years younger than you um, is you forget how much more energy you had back in your 20s than in your <laughs> 40s. Like, it's just extraordinary the, and it, often, it can often be misplaced energy, but they are so energetic um, and, and they so, see so few barriers to the world that you'd have to just be a fuckwit to, um, to want to crush that anyway. So, it, it, there's, yeah, there's a sort of um, – there is a responsibility there. But, 
but the actual the the actual sort of critical engagement part is really easy I find nowadays because like actually it's impossible to be in a single art form for 20 years and not build up some level of appreciation for craft and all it is is about being very um dispassionate in you know and in distilling that craft to the next generation just actually giving them the basics of what's going on and 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 therefore i suppose um in sort of demonstrating that you know that the things that they've written like the criticism is not a personal thing it's it's about the object of the artwork in front of you and but just demonstrating that time and time again through that sort of objective critical engagement through a sort of a craft-based approach then and then and then the fun part of mentoring being just you know allowing them to go you know allowing them to have these crazy ambitious energetic ideas and going oh my god that sounds great I'm going to go home. Why don't you do that overnight and um, I'll come back and check on it in the morning. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's, a wonder, it is, it's a wonderful position to be in. But, yeah, again, you saying that makes me go, oh, maybe I should go off and do something else. Am I the loser in the room who, who you know, stayed at the party 20, 20 years too long? <laughs> no, you know, I mean, I think we need that connection between, like, experience, people who've been there before, but obviously what when that falls down is when somebody of that generation is too tied to the idea that the way they used to do it is now the way that it still needs to be done rather than saying let's look at what this generation's version of what we were doing 20 years ago is which I think are two different yeah. things so talk yes. to me a little bit about how you manage that so I mean it, it is completely different because I mean our writers room this year was majority people of colour so um, I found myself for the first time uh, in my entire life sitting around a writer's room where, um, you know, there was a discussion going on about what white people are like to work with. And, you know, most people were sort of, you know, it was funny. Like we've got a whole sketch called Writing the White most, Character. Most people had great positive stories to tell. I <laughs> That's all it would have been. And you just sat back yeah. and gone, we have nailed this, guys. Well done. Pat yeah, yourself on the back. But there were whole terms, like, which it were colloquial terms that they had that I didn't, wasn't even aware of, which is, do you know what a one-for is and a two-for is and a three-for is? No. So on funding applications, you um, you get points to if you're certain things, right? So if you're a woman, you're a one-for because you've got one thing going for you. Um, if you're a queer woman, they'd be a two-for. Queer Asian woman, three-for, right? Um, and, and But then there's weird ones. Like so in New South Wales um, – if you live in uh, Western Sydney, that's one. So you can actually be a white man. Um, maybe, maybe say you're a white gay man. Um, that would make who lives in Western Sydney. That would make you a twofer, and you would actually beat all the women, all the white women in the room, as long as they weren't gay. So <laughs> and lived in the inner city. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it. Um, and and it's terrible. Our DOP, um, who's a woman, but she's straight, which is a bit of a pity. Um, she, um, but she comes from the Central Coast, which in New South Wales counts as regional, right? 
So um, so she was a twofer, but now she's moving to Sydney, like inner Sydney, and you're just going, oh, come on, you're just a one-fer. Yeah. Um, but that importance, because people <laughs> in the past, obviously one of the things that people looked at with, you know, particularly with Chaser, mm. was the idea that there was a, at least externally, there was, you know, a look of this is mostly men. You know, this is mostly men from a university education of a similar sort of age. You know, it presented one very, you know, it was almost the like the last days of even yes. the idea that you could put, you know, that sort of show on TV. And obviously over the years, you look at the success that Zoe and Kirsten are having with their show at the moment. Like, you know, they talk about coming through, you know, you know, the Chaser organisation and the encouragement they got. But that was clearly a choice that had to be made where, you know, you guys looked around the room and said, it really is just guys. We need to broaden out, you know, the voice and the scope and the view of what it is that we are doing. Yes, yes. It was, and it was way too late. And we were so shit um, back in the early days. We were aware of it right at the start. Um, and and the weird thing is, and it's not weird, it's sort of just terrible um, and reflects very poorly on us that we sort of knew um, that we needed to be more diverse. And instead of acting on it, we sort of had these cello tape solutions in the first few and, and sort of treated it as a, an issue of, oh, well, we need some token sort of involvement from other people. And and it's funny because I, I talk to some people from that generation uh, nowadays, like who's sort of in their mid-40s, um, and some of them still have the attitude that, but, you know, so what if I want to write with my friend from high school who is also a white man you know that's allowed that's legitimate that's just me and him wanting to work together you know and you go yeah no actually it's not that's not how that's not how it works like actually the whole point is no you don't get to do that anymore because that all that leads to is not bringing through far more interesting diverse voices that actually uh usually far funnier, you know, or at least have a, a really interesting perspective. I mean, that's the whole thing about the writer's table that we've got going for War in 2020. It's, it is by far the most interesting writer's table I've ever been at because the perspectives are not just from, oh, did you go to grammar or Shaw? You know, <laughs> it, it was it sort of like there's this diversity of experience that it just leads to more jokes. Like it's just as simple as that. There's more, there's more character dynamics going on because – there's more knowledge about how human humanity reacts to each other in the room. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that sort of um, thing of, oh, but I really just want to work with my male friends. Like, well, that's, that's fine. You can go and do that as a hobby. You can't do that um, as a funded piece of art anymore because actually, you know, like if you're getting money from any funder, um, you don't deserve it if you're going to just – stick to being part of a white boys club. And and in some ways I look at our, uh, like our role in bringing through new people as producers and, and things like that nowadays um, is very much about, like we're, we're sort of the first generation um, weirdly, like you'd think it would have happened 20, 30, 40 years ago, but 
um, where because it is a completely active choice. You just do have to search out beyond your friends' networks. And TV in Australia has never been that. It's always been about just appoint the people you know. Like, and look, I'm not saying the roast was was a perfect thing, but the roast was something that I did. Um, uh, which was a daily news show on ABC Two for a couple of years in 2013 and 2014, and one of the things that sort of made everyone go turn their heads and go, "What, what was that all about?" is we actually advertised um, for all the crew roles on that series, and everyone's going, "But you don't do that. You just appoint your mates, you, like." Surely you should just get so-and-so from that production and so-and-so from that production because you then know them and it's fine. Instead, we just we advertised them in seek.com and got applications. It was a terrible process to do but uh, in terms of the workload. But it meant we ended up with this really diverse crew um, who were so amazingly talented. Like the guy who did all the graphics in the first year was this devout, some would say almost terrorist-like Muslim, <laughs> who, who, um, who was, you know, very, very devout, like really did not think that we were very nice people for drinking alcohol or <laughs> basically anything that we were doing, right? Um, but, my God, he was the most talented graphic artist in, in the world. Like, it's just a pity he went on to bomb that building, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Yeah, he's probably not listening to the podcast, so you're fine, yeah. I think. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> this is not uh, – <laughs> this is <laughs> – yeah, this is uh, probably got a um, – what's it called? A fatwa against it, I'm sure. So, okay, well, that's – that, you know, in, incidentally brings us to an interesting area because obviously one of the big conversations around comedy at the moment is – the nature of what it is that you can and can't say and the context of what you can and can't say. So, for example, let's just use what just happened as an example. It was a conversation about diversity and your genuine desire for diversity. And at the end of it, you like you make a very kind of stereotypical joke about like a Muslim fundamentalist like becoming uh, a terrorist, right? I'm 45, Will. That's what you like. I, I haven't. I'm not fully, you know, reformed yet. No, but I would like to think that the people yeah. listening to this show yeah. understand the context of that. You're, yeah, you're yeah. actually. I, I imagine, you know, yeah. knowing you as a performer and knowing myself as a performer, that part of it was your brain just going, I've got to undercut the worthiness of what it is that I'm saying. Yes, I've got to, yes. like, it sounds like I'm being a really good and nice person. I've got to <laughs> say something that makes me sound like a terrible person just to balance that out so yes. I don't feel too worthy, which is very interesting <laughs> in of itself. But it brings us to the nature of comedy, context with comedy. I don't think anyone's offended by what you said then because they understand the context of the conversation and this podcast but mm. if you got taken out of it out of context and just printed and people like listen to what he said about you know you know dude from the chaser accuses the editor of being terrorist like you know yeah, yeah. you could read that on news.com.au or the daily mail and people would be like oh yeah yeah, yeah this asshole so talk to me about firstly the nature of comedy and context but also there's such a huge debate around what is appropriate and not appropriate in the year 2020. How engaged in that debate are you? How real do you think that debate is? How conscious of the words you choose are you now? Yeah. Because um, I'm very aware that the Twitter pile-on is real. Right? You, like I got piled on last year 
um, for a sketch that I wrote, which actually everyone around me also thought that was a terrible sketch. But it was, <laughs> it was taking the piss out of uh, homeless people and apparently you're not allowed to do that anymore. So, but it was, it, it was actually in the context of robo-debt and it was actually making a politically sound point about um, how hypocritical the government was. But it was, it was also doing a fairly stereotypical, you know, junky homeless person sort of vibe, which, um, uh, yeah, Twitter didn't like. But, but, but I sort of think, um, I think the whole cancel culture thing, it, that whole, oh, everything gets cancelled, is actually a way for right-wing people um, to sort of characterise what, you know, horrible things that they say as being, oh, no, no, you shouldn't cancel me because I'm allowed to say the truth that, you know, Muslims are terrorists. Actually, wait a minute, that's, terrible, that's the example I use. Again, that's the second time, mate. <laughs> One more time and I'm going to have to start beeping it out of the podcast. <laughs> no, no, but so, uh, like, I think, the, like, there's always been, a, you know, things you can't say or shouldn't say because... You know, you shouldn't be racist, you shouldn't be sexist, you should, like, actually, and there's a real impact that that has on people. It's not it's not just speech. It's actually people get assaulted on the street and, you know, when, actually, when people are racist, that is a violence on people of certain races and things like that. So, um, you know, like, there's, like, I think it's so dumb, this sort of absolutist idea that, oh, well, you can't say anything. Well, you've never been allowed to say everything. Like, and also, why would you want to say everything? Like, surely you want to improve the world. Like, that's part of um, commenting on it is to... So, I, I sort of... And, and I think I, I think the mob can get it wrong, right? The mob can sort of pile on in the... Um, in a way that's not very productive. But I don't think that usually happens. I think... Usually, what happens is the mob piles on when, um, when you know, yeah, someone said something really awful, and and I think and I think also, um, you know, when like people don't get cancelled, it's just untrue, right? Like the only time that people actually get genuinely cancelled nowadays is when people get deplatformed, right? So that's when you get banned from Twitter, you get banned from Facebook, you get banned from YouTube and suddenly um, you can't speak anymore. But those people all end up on Fox News and Sky News or columns in the Herald Sun. Like, it's not... They don't get deplatformed. They just get punted to the far right corners of society and they still get millions of people. So I sort of... um, I I think the whole thing is... I think it's something that... um, it's used as a tool in the same way that political correctness was used as a tool um, 20 years ago where, oh, I can't say anything politically incorrect anymore. Well, that was code for I really want to say something really racist um, but I'm going to call it political correctness so I can get away with it. That's the same, it's exactly the same thing but we now just call it cancel culture and you just go, no, you're probably just a fuckwit if you complain about cancel culture. You're just probably a bit of a dick. So I'm, I'm interested in that because as somebody who, you know, obviously 
I agree with everything that you're saying. I, I really do. Apart from the whole Muslims are terrorist thing, I've got to distance myself from that. <laughs> but. Right. Some some Muslims. <laughs> That's the caveat. <laughs> but so we're we're Not arguing all. Two, <laughs> we're arguing two things at the same time, which is where this stuff gets really interesting to me anyway. Which mm. is in one case we're saying, of course, you know, cancel culture and political correctness and gone mad and all these sort of things are you know thinly veiled excuses for racism and sexism and homophobia and all these things previously but at the same time we're still riffing on this muslims are terrorist thing so we would defend like i think if somebody tried to blow this conversation up just using that we would be like no you didn't listen to the context of the entire conversation it was clearly undercutting something else we were talking about then it became a riff about the awkwardness of that moment and so then it became funny to call it back again because like there's so much going on comedically and in that discussion that we're talking about the like that it's it's a cover in one way but why is it a cover for them and yet i would be using a completely different excuse to say but we should be able to say what we're saying in this moment in this conversation because also free speech and pushing the line and you know saying you know dark and funny things is also important yeah yeah because it's messy right and you work in the world of pushing the boundaries of things you work in the world of saying something provocative to make a point Mm. or to get like a laugh because of the fact that it is provocative. And it means sometimes that, you know, you might've been trying to make a good point with the robo debt thing, but maybe Mm. you punched down a little bit along the way and people had a problem with that. Those, both those two things can be true. How do you find the balance and how do you deal with it? I think, I think there's an enormous pressure nowadays to, to strip out the subtleties of things, right? So you sort of you go, and and I think the thing that's most destructive to art is to get rid of the subtleties, right? and and good writing and all those things, and and so I, I think I think you're right. I think we ha- there is a real problem when people start fearing what they're writing or saying, um, because. You know, they don't want to be perceived in one way when they actually meant something else. And I suppose my answer to that is, well, I think you just have to um, you have to be confident that the truth will out, that actually, you know, anyone who, you know, tries to cancel us over this conversation, you know, anyone who then goes back to the text and listens to the whole thing in context goes, oh, yeah, okay, I understand there were subtleties there. And you have to you have to trust that even if the mob comes to you for a day for doing it, that that in the end that will blow over because... The mob know, is very busy. It turns yeah, out the there mob is lots very, of yeah, things they, that the mob needs it. to gather for. Yeah, and that, and that for every, you know... Um, little soundbite that somebody else can can throw out there about this thing you know you could throw out another soundbite that goes oh yeah actually it was there was there was a second story and you've actually seen that quite a lot i reckon in the last you know there's always a muddying of the waters now um on those big cancel things where you sort of go and and i find myself going oh maybe i shouldn't jump to conclusions about a mob attack um because actually there probably is like I can't believe that so and so would say that or whatever, um, but so I think I, I, I mean the the test that I personally 
adhere to is would my mum be proud of me for doing that? Would I be able to show this to my mum and she would accept it as, <laughs> as fine? Because and and she's like she listens to everything that I do. So it's a good, such a lovely thing, and it's sort of like. Um, but she accepts that I'm going to sometimes be gross or, you know, <laughs> um, but but the thing that she really would be ashamed of and wouldn't like in me is if I was not very subtle in my, you know, like if I didn't have those subtleties and, and actually didn't, you know, see the shades of grey that actually make it work. So I don't know whether that works as a generalised philosophy, but, but I think there is something there where you go, if, you, if you're being... I don't know. I'll give you an example. Just um, So we've got this new publication that we're doing, which is sort of sister publication to the JC called The Shot, right? And it's um, it's basically passionate essaying. The The slogan for it is profane and profound, right? And it's not, it's not comedy, but it's got to be entertaining. It's sort of... Um, and... And what we've realised is there's actually a huge gap in the commentary market. You'd think that everything that could be commentated on has already been said in Australia. But there's actually a massive gap in that market, which is really entertainingly written um, commentary about stuff that actually um, also accepts all the subtleties of the world. Like, actually, most commentary is really shit because it sort of takes a side and then prosecutes that side. And instead, we have these wonderful excursive essays which sort of, you know, going, yeah, Dan Andrews was a hero for standing up to Andrew Bolt, but God, I hated the lockdown and everything Dan Andrews did was so shit and what a disaster with the hotel quarantine. But I still support him more than, you know, and it's sort of this sort of crazy... But, but that is actually... That's humanity. That's life. Is not is not the sort of take aside and stick to it. It's It's this subtle interplay. And that's actually where... That's where, and people get excited by that stuff because actually it's in the subtleties where real connection is made and 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 you get to a, a greater truth. I mean, I suppose this podcast is probably a good example of that. This podcast is, that's the whole point of it was meant to be. It's why the reason I don't have people on that I <clears throat> hate, like, you know, mm. like people will say, why don't you have an Andrew Bolt on or why don't you have like a Pete Evans? And when I say hate, that's a, that's probably the misuse of the word hate, but just people mm. that I have no time for people that I think that I could never find some sort of middle ground or common ground. And the other thing is I like people to come on here and have a good time, but it's mostly meant to be about the complications of life. The idea that things aren't black and white, the things that there are, you know, even within a conversation, even within a point, there are a myriad of, you know, dog legs and gray areas. So absolutely. Mm. That's what this conversation is meant to be about, but it, when, then when you translate that to comedy, because comedy can work so much better as being black or white, how have you, you know, used a little bit more or grey in your comedy or is it still when it comes down to stuff you're doing for Chaser in particular, got to be black and white in the end? I think it's just got to be clear. Yeah. So, there's, and there's a huge difference. I think, I think when you're doing daily turnaround sketches or something like that, then there's no... It does end up being black and white, um, but even then, I'd say um, the better Mark Humphreys sketches, for example, on Seven Thirty, 
are the ones that pick some very small complication about some you know issue and and really drill down just on that that little subtlety that no one or everyone sort of everyone knows about everyone relates to and goes oh yeah that's true about these but but has been sort of neglected in the black and white world that we live in so i think actually i mean i've always said that the the chaser's whole um you know role in public life is doubt creation that actually you know in on both sides of politics on all sides of politics it's better to sort of cut down people when they're um you know <laughs> thinking they're great you know with all the sort of just keeping everyone down to size and the way you do that is by showing the subtlety i mean that's why people on the labor side of politics often sort of get really annoyed when we point out how terrible albo is <laughs> whatever or you know or how stupid the greens can be being right but unpowerful and stuff like that and you go oh aren't you supposed to be on this side and say no 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 i think it's better that we be a bit more subtle in our attacks and um and do everything so i think I don't think um, if you have to be black and white in your comedy, then what is actually going on is you lack the craft to do, you know, to be clear when actually talking about subtle things. And and if there's one thing that Andrew Hansen has taught me in the last couple of years, because we did a radio show for the last couple of years, um, it was just his his commitment to the absolute clarity of what exactly you're trying to say is so razor-focused, it just lifts everything. And he'll just cut away everything else and whatever you're trying to say, no matter how subtle, no matter how shades of grey it is, he'll just allow the whole sketch to travel to that one point. And it, it is, and it, it makes for better sketches. Uh, tell me about your comedy background. How did you come to comedy in the first place? Why was it that you found yourself expressing yourself comedically to the world? Well, I, I, as I say, I think my parents broke up and I used it as a sort of form of self-conscious, uh, of, of self-comforting um, very early on and became the class clown. It's the standard stuff in late primary school. Started just um, dealing with my own sadness by um, making everyone else laugh. I think that's a fairly... But tell me, like, give me more a broader picture than that. Painted it, because class clown could mean anything. It could mean Mm. the person, you know, up the back of the room, you know, doing fart noises under his, you know, armpit while the teacher's trying to teach maths. Or it could be somebody who's, you know, learning comedy routines and reciting them to people in the playground. Or it could be somebody who has a genuine, eloquent way of, you know, responding to critics or bullies or teachers and, you know, undermining that and you using humour to undermine that. What was your version of Class Clown? What did it look like? Well, it, it started out as we had this teacher who didn't set any deadlines for anything, but she just required us to write one piece of English per week, right? This is in late primary school. And and if they were good enough, they went up on the board so everyone could read them. So I just thought that was the greatest thing in the world for other people to you know, <laughs> read something you'd written. Like, it just, it was just like, that is... So I just did it. I would write comedy poems. Like it was sort of Spike Milligan and stuff like mm. that was the start of it. And then when that went well, 
you know, speeches. I even wrote a comedy computer program because you're allowed, like, you're allowed to express yourself in whatever way you wanted. And then when I got to high school, um, I think there was still that sort of, um, just that love of creation. And so what we did very early on, I went to a very nice school which had a sort of um, TV channel. And so I went to this school. My parents weren't by any means rich. Um, but I went to this really posh school that um, that had this TV network wired into all the classrooms, so you could actually have the same channel on every inter- like internal channel on every screen in the school, right? And I went to the school thinking I'm going to make use of every single piece of resources that are at this school because you know um, it's such a privileged school. I'm going to get. I'm going to suck the marrow out of this bone <laughs> and and so we very quickly i think by about year eight we went hang on we've got this channel this can be this is a tv channel like we can actually create our own tv channel so we called we, we put together a news show where we would you were absolutely right like this was the heyday of the late show and andrew dent and they were the sort of things on tv and we just mimicked them we'd do stunts where we go up and harass teachers and interview and do vox pops in the playground and just basically, you know, um, made havoc. And the whole thing was that then in, on lunch times we'd broadcast them around the school, and the, and they ended up letting um, everyone go in. So you weren't supposed to go inside, but whenever we were broadcasting our show people were allowed to go into a classroom and watch the show on the TV channel. And we'd cleared the whole playground. Like, it, it was just, you know, they, we, the whole school would watch this sort of thing. So it was sort of like the supercharged equivalent of posting your story on the pin board because it was good enough, um, but done at a school-wide level. It was just, it was such a fun period. And then, and of course, that was all through comedy because... What better? And and the other thing is, I I, I had that Tina Fey um, uh, moment the other day where I realised. So, so I'd always thought of myself because I wasn't a jock; I was the nerdy sort of you know computer guy, and um, and I had always thought of myself as being you know because the, the jocks would bu- bu- bully you, and you know um, I remember I, they had this nickname for me called. Milk, milk, because you're so white. Milk, right? <laughs> First white person ever to be <laughs> racistly harassed for being too white by another white person, I'd add. Um, and so I used the platform of my TV program to just cut these people down to size. Like I would re- be really mean to them. There was one where we promised him an opportunity to be interviewed on the show and so we got him to stand there at the beginning of lunchtime. We said, okay, we're going to cross to you in a sec. And we stood him in front of a camera. And we just kept on crossing to him saying, oh, we're just going to we'll, – we'll come back to him in a sec and just never allowed him. And then the bell rang and we oh, sorry, we haven't been able to get to him today. Sorry, we'll just – and so we just made him stand up. He hadn't had his lunch. 
And he had to stand up for 40 minutes through his whole lunch expecting to be on this TV show and he was just humiliated. And you just go, it was really funny at the time, but I just realised, oh, no, I was the bully. I was a fucking bully. <laughs> but Isn't I it amazing the-, the context and how you can look back on it contextually? So <laughs> yeah. it, it's, I, when I started having some success in stand-up and then we were doing The Glass House on the ABC, I was in on another TV show being interviewed and I'll reveal which TV show it was in a second, but... <laughs> I told this story about this high school teacher that I had called Mrs. Cribbies. Anyway, Mrs. Cribbies, I'd written this school play and she'd said uh, that I wasn't funny and that I was never going to be funny, right? Not the first person to say that, it turns out, over the years. But um, (laughs) anyway, not the only person, probably the first person. So she says, um, you're not funny and you're never going to be funny. And so I tell the story on this TV show about how um, when we were trying to come up with names for the glass house that I wanted to call it Stick It Up Your Ass, Mrs. Crippies, just so that she would have to see that, you know, in the paper every week. And I'm thinking this is a funny joke, right? Because like when we were at school, she had all the power and I had none of the power. And then she got really upset at me telling that story on this TV show, like, and complained and a whole bunch of things. And I was saying to my manager, I was just like, but what are you talking about? Like, I'm the victim of this story. And she, he goes, yeah, but she said it at your high school in country Victoria and you told that story on Rove. And so now, so now you're the bully, right? Because there's like a million people watching you tell this story and laugh at her. And I was like... Oh, fuck. Because, like, there wasn't one moment of that where I was like, I'm going to go on TV and be a bully to this woman. I didn't feel like that's what I was doing. No. I still felt like I was telling a story that was somehow I was the victim, but I wasn't. I was the bully. You were the fuckwit, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I've told that story again on this podcast. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm conscious of time and I still have a bunch of things that I want to talk to you about. So I I want your reflections on 2020 because I know you're in the middle, obviously, of this war on 2020 project and you've been thinking about it a lot. And hopefully, you know, in the last hour, you haven't entirely been thinking about these files and whether you'll be able to open these files. files. (laughs) Good. Thanks for reminding me. You'd forgotten for a while. We'll just get that little edge back in our conversation. But... (laughs) What are your reflections on this year, 2020? What do you think that it has revealed about the way that our society is put together, the way that we operate, the way that what we think is important and what is not important? What what are your observations? I know we're still in the middle of it to a certain extent, but as Australia, at the very least for the time being, you know, is coming out of the worst you know, of COVID, at least in the practical sense of people catching it and dying of it, um, while the rest of the world still probably isn't at that stage and some places are very far flung from that stage. Um, what, are, what are your reflections, particularly on Australia and how we handled it? Well, I mean, doesn't it make you grateful that we still have trust in our institutions and our government? Like It shows the triumph of, um, you know, good depoliticized bureaucratic governance <laughs> i mean at a fundamental level and it, it it sort of it really does expose the the hideous underbelly of you know especially the neoliberal experiment um that you know like you can literally draw a line you know the graphs tell the story about where it's it's most out of control and and they are in places where you know there's been a 
30, 40 year attack on on tax. It's very, very boring things like tax bases and, you know, um, equality between rich and poor and, 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 you know, where, you know, where you have those sort of fundamental problems. The problem is that it, it, there's actually two things going on there, which is the rich feel like they exist above the rest of the world and so they think they're above the rules and so they don't follow them anyway and so you've got that problem because in a pandemic you can't have any rule breakers everyone has to be on the same page and then the other problem is that you know when you immiserate people so much that their security relies on having to go to work regardless of you know the the health consequences of that that you have this hideous um interplay that sort of spirals out of control so i think there's going to be i mean i I don't think we've even started thinking about how this is going to play out over the next 10 years this is not about like my mum was saying oh you know maybe in a couple of years we'll go to the galapagos islands she she wants to show the kids my kids the galapagos islands and say mum you're not gonna you'll, you'll be too old by the time international travel is like this is a the 2020s is the pandemic and and the political consequences of the pandemic the the fact that you know and 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 then the other thing i suppose is it's not necessarily the case that therefore suddenly america will get free health care and will all turn into socialist paradises like even in australia the consequences of this some of the the lessons out of this are really quite nasty little, you know, small, like the triumph of small Australia. It's, it's, you know, it's the border, strict borders, uh, right, that, you know, actually protecting ourselves from the rest of the world and just huddling up here in our rich little racist evil <laughs> like little nation pumping out the fossil fuels and the carbon is actually that's the recipe for success. Like that, that's what I mean. I'm sure that's what half the population, or at least you know, a lot of the political leadership uh, in Australia at the moment are going to take out of this, which is Fortress Australia. And that's it's not. I mean, let's not kid ourselves about what globalisation did, but that's you know, in terms of a sort of philosophical viewpoint of you know, Australia does have a problem with you know, white exceptionalism and thinking that, you know, um, you know, like it it has a whole race problem and um, this is not going to solve that problem at all. It's, it's horrible. It's just, there's nothing good about this. But, but then, then you've got Melbourne, right? Where I think, you know, it's one of those things where despite what, you know, Andrew Bolt says it was a brilliant example of everyone or most people following the rules and being in something so profoundly um, community-based together for so long and actually winning and succeeding. It was such a brilliant example of collective action working that I, I mean I, I sort of feel like Melbourne is there. It's almost going to be like a Nordic state of Australia. Um, for the next generation because they have 
so demonstrated that collective action is is a superior form of sort of <laughs> governance that that w- that will be an enduring sort of um, myth. One of the inter- one of the interesting things about the political approach and the ramifications of that will be that I am waiting to see how it plays out because you there were so many people who were attacking the plan that they had and. Those people haven't to this point been held accountable and, you know, they may never be. Maybe there is some grace period in the middle of a pandemic where, you know, everybody has ideas about how to fix things and, you know, people will go, well, they were their ideas, they had different ideas. But I think in politics, particularly progressive politics recently, what has happened is that people have got spooked along the way. Here is my climate plan. Here is my, you know, plan for, you know, marriage equality. And then they get spooked by the Andrew Bolts or they get spooked by the Tim Smiths or they get spooked by the people who have these contrary opinions. And this time they didn't get spooked. So I wonder if there's going to be a lasting lesson of that if you want to do something serious, you are going to have to put your head down and you have to cop every bit of flack along the way if you really truly want to achieve something. And you can, I mean, the sound of Rupert Murdoch deflating is, is you can actually hear it. It's in the background of Australian politics now. Um, His power has sort of been called, it's the emperor's new clothes almost. But... um, but the truth is, you've got to call it. The problem is, there's no one like except for Daniel Andrews. There's very few of them who still have absorbed that lesson that you you describe. Like, I, I, I sort of I think you're right. Like Kevin Rudd would have like if he would just barreled through with his you know climate change plan, we would be in a completely different position. Um, but yeah, so. I mean, hopefully you're right, but but don't you think um, it also requires a sort of fundamental sh- shift? In, like we actually do have to get rid of Murdoch for that to happen properly, um, and that's sort of happening. Yeah, and I suppose that's that's the lesson of we actually have to fight on. I, I also feel like there's a sort of missing piece of infrastructure there that that actually, um, you know, our the institutions of Communicate democratic communication have been completely undermined, especially under Scott Morrison. Like the ABC is just a skeleton of you know what it was. Um, there's a whole extra piece of infrastructure that's um, that's going to be required. And and I, I don't know. I mean, look, I think what's going on in Victoria is fascinating because clearly there's capital flight going on. I think that there are a lot of vested, you know capitalist interests like bankers are basically going we can never let this victorian experiment allow be allowed to succeed at a commercial level that's why they're downgrading the ratings of victoria even though you know after such a success you know that's that's the way ca- well, we can't let that sort of happen and and it will require an ext- almost superhuman form of political leadership for daniel andrews to sort of go okay we'll, we'll replace that with um, public investment, but if there's anyone who's going to do it, it, it would be him. But it, I think that that will require state governments getting involved in things like, you know, public media and stuff like that. Like I think actually the one trick that we haven't tried in Australia is a, a federal approach to. I mean, Scott Morrison's devolved most of responsibility for everything to the states this year, and I think I think the states actually now need to pick up 
things like the ABC as, oh, okay, well, that's now our responsibility and, and start, you know, doing things like that. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. I um, need us to finish up soon, but there are some yes. standard questions that I like to ask on this show. So let's get to some of those. First one, what do you think happens when we die? I think it's just the end. That's it. It's over. Did you ever believe anything other than that? I don't think so, no. And in actual fact, I think like any other, um, I think that's also the happiest and most hopeful so I think I think we're driven by our existential dread <laughs> of dying, and um, if we didn't have that, like I think I think that's why Christians can often be very shitty people because <laughs> they don't exist for the here and now. Like you know, in my experience, the the worst, most awful people in the world tend to be Christians who sort of you know, and you're just going, but hang on. You're here right now. What are you doing? Like, you're being horrible right now. You're being all righteous and everything. It doesn't matter whether you're right or wrong. We're all dead in the end. But they don't seem to believe... Well, they don't believe that. It is interesting, isn't it, that... uh, So how much do you think about it then? How much do you think about death on a sort of daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis? Well, I've thought a lot about it this year because, you know, my dad got very sick and um, you sort of... um, you know, and, and I think being in your mid-40s gives you a whole existential grief because, you, you, you know, you're now more than halfway through your life and you really need to focus your mind on what you actually want to get out of the rest of your life and, and not just career but, the, you know, how you want to interact with those around you. And I think it makes you a better person to, to have a bit of an awareness that, you know, this is not this is not forever and you have to make every day count. Um, and, and, and therefore things like, and that leads to things like being more present. Like I just, time is so fleeting and, you know, the kids are so amazing. I've got a 10 and 12 year old and you just go, you want every moment spent with them to count. You just, I think thinking about death allows you to want to go, well, I'm not going to be here forever. I want every moment that I spend with these guys to be amazing. What do you tell your kids about the world that they are inheriting? Because obviously we're going through a life event, you know, regardless of where this contextually ends up sitting, this great COVID shutdown of the world is going to be one of those. I don't know if we've in our lifetime lived through anything of this magnitude. You know, there's been, you know, I think to your 9-11s and these sort of, you know, things that seemed like they were our war. It seemed like they were our, you know, but it feels like to me, at least, I can't really, it feels like this is the one that we're going through. But then, Mm. of course, we have climate change and the ramifications of that also, you know, on happening now and also, you know, continuing to happen in the next, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, hopefully 50 years. Um how do you talk to your kids about the world that they are coming into? Well, I mean, they're just really passionate about it. Like, you don't really need to just, like, they're the ones who are worried about it. I mean, especially my 12-year-old. He, we actually, what we do is we brainstorm ways to to help fix it, like to be of use, you know, like what's the best place to, the with a man with his abilities can place himself in 
to help out into the future. We this led to very misguided sort of ideas. Like, for example, we worked out mathematically that you'd only need to plant six trillion trees to save the world from that's how much carbon deficit there is. And we sort of crunched the numbers. And so he ran for school captain on the idea that he, he would get his class to um, plant a million trees this year. Mm. Um, right, Fairly ambitious, but we actually worked out that if the whole school took about three weeks off class and went out somewhere, you know, with a few hundred acres um, out west, we'd actually be able to plant a million trees. It'd be amazing de- demonstrative sort of piece of environmental action. Uh, unfortunately, the p- pandemic got in the way, but um, but it was wonderful because it was that beautiful melding of retail politics and high-mindedness where the first line on his poster was, plant a million trees next year, um, and the next line on it was... Um, Get off school for three weeks. <laughs> he just going. It's the, it was the perfect campaign. He got elected. Like, it's just, but it was his whole sort of being able to meld those two, the clear moral vision and the advantage for you. <laughs> well, yeah, you've got to pitch to people what's in it for them. I think that is probably like a mistake that a lot of progressive politicians make is they tell us what it's going to cost us, how it's going to hurt us without pointing any of the benefit out often. Well, I think actually a lot of left politicians just like to be right. I think there's a whole addiction (laughs) to sort of going, oh, well, you know, it's all terrible. And it's like, well, so what? Like politics, (laughs) the art of good politics is the doing part is, you know, solution forward two things and we'll finish up because i know that yep. you have another commitment as do i actually yep. but i was enjoying talking to you <laughs> yeah, very it's much. lovely let's, it's, yeah. let's do the plugs first so yep. uh war on 2020 um but tell people about you know uh, the chaser tell people about the shot just g- give us the plugs first yeah okay well um so the main thing that i've been doing for the last six months is this thing called the war on 2020 and it's coming out through all the sort of chaser platforms so you can see it at chaser.com.au or you can uh, see it on Twitter, at Chaser, uh, Facebook, everywhere you get your Chaser content. And basically it's a series of 15 comedy sketches um, uh, with real, the superstars, satirical superstars of the next generation. So it's Mark Humphreys, Jenna Owen, Victoria Zerps, Nina Oyama, Sammy Shah. It's just a wonderful, Steph Tisdall, like, really top class um comedians at the at the absolute height of their um command uh, and me i'm in i'm in some sketches <laughs> I, I keep on getting cast as the boomer and so i'm not a boomer you know and so, okay boomer yeah. and charles as the problem <laughs> yeah i know yes exactly i'm the white man i'm the token white man like literally and and because uh, we've got this brilliant sketch that Jenna and Victoria wrote called the Contact Tracys. Actually, I think Nina also wrote it. Um, where um, they're Gen Z um, characters. They're both like nineteen years old, and they've been called in to help do the contact tracing. And and I'm play a forty five year old going, oh, we can't possibly find this person. And they're going. Um, Who's his boyfriend? You know, or whatever. You know, okay. We'll just pretend that we're his boyfriend, and we'll just pretend we've ghosted him. All oh, right. Now he's just posted a you know sad tweet to TikTok. So he's you know, and it's, like, and it's just wonderful. Um, yeah, it's just uh, yeah, 
it, it, yeah, it's just this beautiful. Um, there's a whole language there that, that the sketches have, which you know I couldn't possibly pull off because I'm the fucking old man. Uh, uh, okay, so to, you can find all that stuff at all the chaser places. Anything yeah. else you want to quickly plug, or I'm going to ask oh, you the two final questions? Look, might as well plug. Can I just plug the the Chaser Annual, which is out now? I'm very worried because no one's buying uh, books from bookstores anymore. But we've printed a whole lot of them, so you better go and bloody buy it some. It's a great stocking filler. And it's also, it is, it really is the best annual we've done in a while because we had so much stuff to put in there about 2020. So it, you can basically relive the year that you'd rather forget in, in one healthy, uh, full-colour, beautiful um, annual. So, so get that at any bookstores. And then also check out theshot.net.au, which is our new sister publication, which is sort of passionate profane, profound essaying. It's it's a really nice um, website that's actually bringing through a whole lot of really good writers um, into the essaying space in a way that really has a distinctive voice. There's not nothing quite like it in Australia. Okay, so two questions. One is, I have a magic wand. Normally, I, in fact, I'll ask it in two parts. One is I have a magic wand and I can fix one thing about Australian democracy that would make it better. What is the one thing that I would fix immediately? Let's answer that bit first. So I, I would I would get rid of um, the Murdoch press. I think actually it is a it's not a media organisation anymore. It's a political organisation masquerading as a media organisation. And even if other voices filled that void with proper journalism. Australian democracy would be so much more healthy. I mean, just look at New Zealand. Uh, B, uh, I have a magic wand. I can give you any skill in the world. You don't have to do your 10,000 hours. You can just immediately have that skill. What would that skill be? Um, I'm sorry. I'm halfway through the Queen's Gambit, so I think I just have to say chess. I just want to. I want to be like her and just be able to play I, chess. I agree. Like the idea of taking a whole bunch of drugs and then seeing chess games play out on the, <laughs> the roof is real. I was like, "This is a real good show." Yeah, I'm yeah. really digging this. Um, all right. Final question. I have a time machine. I can take you forward in time. I can take you back in time. I can take you to any point in your own life. You can give yourself some advice. You can observe something but you don't have to go to your own life if you're not interested in that you can just go and observe a period in time in history where would you like to go can i go forward in time absolutely you can take go forward in uh, time. you've I've, got to take the risk of how far forward you go with, without there being major ramifications i want to go forward like 50 years and mm. i want to see my kids and what they're doing that's totally that's hands down exactly what i'd do i just want to i'd love to see how because they're both such interesting distinctive people <laughs> and you just go why would you waste it on anything else well the good news is you can technically do that just by looking after yourself for the next 50 years <laughs> uh, Charles we're going to have to do this again sometime because there were so many things to talk about but uh, I know this morning we both have a couple of other things to get to but thank you so much for doing it I really have uh, very much enjoyed this chat yeah I love that that was so much fun thank you so much thank you